The Supreme Court has heard its last oral argument of the decade and won't be back until the new year. And in the meantime, there's a lot of news to go over from the past week. Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 to keep you up to speed about the nation's top court and the justices that preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the Supreme Court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is co-host and Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Jimmy. Yes, it was another full week for the court. It dropped its first two opinions of the term, added a new case to the docket that Jimmy's going to fill us in on in a moment, and the justices heard a full slate of six arguments over three days. That's right. Yeah, we're going to be jumping into Tuesday's arguments, which is a battle between health insurers and the government over whether the government has to pay all of the losses that the insurance companies suffered in the beginning years of the Affordable Care Act. We're also going to give an update on the Trump financial case that we've been watching. Uh, Briefs are coming fast and furiously. Yeah, but first, the Supreme Court dropped its first two opinions of the term. One of those was in Peter versus Nanquist. Uh, Now, some of our listeners, I I should remember this one. It's a case we spoke about a few weeks ago where the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office had been trying to recoup their own attorney's fees, even in cases that they lose. Now, the agency had been trying to use a new, broader reading of an old rule to get their bills paid, but the justices said that's a no-go. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, writing for the unanimous court, called the agency's request a radical departure from long-standing fee-shifting principles. And on Friday, the Supreme Court added another case to its docket. Um, this one, they're going to review a Third Circuit ruling that overturned the state's 122-year-old major party membership and balance requirements for members of its three top courts. So in Delaware, there's you know a constitutional provision that limits the top three courts in the, in the state, the Supreme, the Superior, and the Chancery Courts, to having no more than a bare majority of Republicans um, or Democrats on those benches. So you know no more than a five to four Democrat to Republican majority and you know vice versa, Republicans to Democrats. So the Delaware governor says that you know these constitutional provisions, they you know boost public confidence, they reduce the specter of partisanship in the court system. You know, but the Third Circuit saw things a little differently, and they said that prohibiting an applicant from seeking, you know, a judicial appointment to one of those three courts because of his or her party affiliation, that violates the First Amendment. Now, you know, remember, in a lot of states, they have judicial elections as opposed to the federal system where they're appointed. So that's going to be the issue that's going to be discussed in, you know, Carney versus Adams, and uh, we'll talk more about it when it comes up for arguments. But anyway, um, Natalie, you have an update for us in the brewing high court battle over access to President Trump's financial records, right? Sure do. Um, So as some of our listeners may recall, a few weeks ago, we talked briefly how the Supreme Court had been called in to block a House of Representatives subpoena for Trump's financial records, which they did temporarily to allow for an appeal to the Second Circuit. Um, The D.C. Circuit had said the subpoena was good to go. Well, there's been a lot of new activity in that case over the last few days. Um, First, on Friday, after we recorded last week's episode, the justices put another stay on the subpoena following the Second Circuit's ruling that uh, would have had Deutsche Bank and Capital One turning over their financial records uh, of Trump, his businesses, and his family. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg penned the order, which gives Trump the opportunity to now appeal the case to the Supreme Court. Since then, there's been a flurry of briefs as the justices put the stay in place only until tomorrow, December 13th, so that the justices can further review the matter. So, Natalie, can you help me understand the arguments on both sides? I guess the House panel obviously doesn't want the court to take up this case, um, but if it does, they want it to you know, be done quickly so it can 
you know, get the legality of the, the subpoena resolved. Yeah. So Trump's lawyers basically say um, the subpoena should be invalid, that the House Committee on Oversight and Reform is stepping outside their congressional authority. Um, they say, you know, there's no legitimate legislative purpose for the subpoena, but rather that the committee is trying to flex its muscle in an unprecedented way to conduct a law enforcement investigation outside of its purview. Uh, yesterday, though, the House's lawyers filed a brief saying that the Supreme Court should just drop the case, not review it, and let the Second Circuit ruling stand because the request is within their legislative purview. Uh, you know, they pa- they pointed to pending legislation that the committee has already introduced related to its inquiry, which was a core factor in the decision for both the Second Circuit and D.C. Circuit allowing the subpoena to move forward. Um, but Trump's lawyers, you know, in their briefs, they, they really highlighted how this is a case of first. You know, it's the first time that Congress has subpoenaed the personal records of a sitting president. It's the first time a court has upheld such a subpoena. You know, they argue it could be a slippery slope if the Supreme Court lets it go forward, um, that this could be open the door for the Congress to routinely use investigations to look into the personal affairs of political rivals. Um, so we'll see what the first decision basically is on this. I think shortly uh, the decision from the justices could land any minute now. So please keep an eye out on Law 360 for the decisions, as I'm sure we'll be covering it. That's right. And so moving on to um, what happened in uh, the actual courtroom this week. Um, on Tuesday, the court heard oral arguments in three consolidated cases. I'll just go with the main one here, which is Maine Community Health Options versus United States. Um, so in these um, three cases, which involve four health insurers, the health insurers are trying to get the government to cover its shortfalls from the first three years of the Affordable Care Act. So it involves kind of an obscure part of the ACA, which is known as the Risk Corridor Program. You know, not a lot of people have heard about it, but it's, it's a pretty big deal. But if the insurers win, it could essentially expose the government to as much as $12 billion in liability to insurers that lost money in those you know, opening years of the Affordable Care Act. That's a big bill. Um, can, you ex- <laughs> right. can you explain what the risk quarter program is? I don't think many people have heard of it, and it sounds like a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's a very big deal. So it's it's kind of like how, you know, everyone's heard of the individual mandate, um, you know, requiring people under the Affordable Care Act to purchase health insurance. And so the reason for that was to kind of create these balanced risk pools and, you know, get young, healthy people um, into the marketplace to the offset, uh, you know, the cost of some of the older and sicker insurers who are more likely to file claims. It's basically creating a balanced risk pool. So, um, so to hear this risk corridor program was meant to incentivize essentially the health insurers to participate in the market in the first place because obviously the ACA came in with all these additional rules and requirements for the um, insurance companies among them you know that they have to they can't turn away people for pre-existing conditions and so how it worked was that um, basically it would shift profits from you know companies that made a lot of market uh, money um, in the first you know three years of the ACA those profits would shift to the companies that didn't make a whole lot of money. So it was essentially like, you know, hedging their bets on, you know, incentivizing them to participate in a program that perhaps they otherwise would not. That sounds pretty good in theory. I'm assuming it did not go well in practice. <laughs> no. So things went 
went went quickly south. Um, you know, as most people know, the government struggled um, in the first few years of the ACA to to create those balanced risk pools. You know, a lot of healthy people stayed out of the market altogether, and so there weren't as many people to offset the cost of those you know sicker patients who were more likely to file claims. So it became clear that you know profits weren't going to be enough to cover the losses, um, and you know those losses eventually ballooned to like twelve billion dollars, according to some figures. Um, so you know a new Congress comes in and they're staring at all of these unpaid obligations to these insurance companies and they don't want to pay essentially and so they prohibit um, the spending on risk corridors at the um, urging of republicans who deem the program kind of like a bailout for insurance companies under the you know largely democratic um, enacted aca bailout has become such a a derogatory term i feel these days <laughs> right um so the supreme court heard oral arguments in the case tuesday how did the justices respond to the insurer's arguments right so the insurance companies say this is a you know a monetary obligation that congress created and they have to pay up they can't just um dodge their economic liabilities here by passing these appropriations riders um that basically prevented the secretary of health from spending the, the risk corridor money um to pay all of these you know outstanding you know quote-unquote debts um but of course it didn't actually you know, rescind the risk corridor language in the Affordable Care Act itself. So the insurance companies say, you know, th these obligations still exist. And so that was kind of the subject of debate at Tuesday's oral arguments. And now it seemed a little bit shaky for the insurance companies at first. Um, you know, their attorney, Paul Clement of Kirkland and Ellis, who had litigated some of the past Affordable Care Act um, cases before the Supreme Court, you know, he faced some pretty tough headwinds from, the, from some of the justices. And in particular, it was Justice Samuel Alito, who tended to take the side of the government. Now, if you've ever you know, seen him in an ACA case before, he's generally not too hospitable to the government's arguments. But here he was basically saying that the insurance companies were asking for some special solicitude. You know, can't Congress, when it wants to undo some of the obligations that it created for himself? But, you know, as I said... Um, that was th my initial impression. Then, and of course, the government's attorney got up um, to the lectern, and, and he had a way tougher go of things. This was Edwin Needler, Needler of the U.S. Solicitor General's office, and you know you had Justice Elena Kagan balking at the notion that you know health insurers who made a lot of money had to pay, of course, back into this risk corridor program, whereas the government doesn't really have to pay to make up for these shortfalls because it doesn't quote feel like it. And she says, "What kind of statute is that?" <laughs> and that was kind of what Justice. Stephen Breyer was saying too. He says, you know, so why does the government not have to pay its contracts just like anybody else? And he seemed to be hung up on the notion that, you know, when the ACA enacted legislation that said that the Secretary of Health shall pay, and those are the words in the statute, he says, why isn't that a contract like anything else, like a government salary or something like that? It's interesting to see the the, the justices kind of play surprising roles in the argument um, on this one. Yeah, there was an interesting mix and mashup between, you know, uh, some of the members of the bench here that go way beyond the normal, you know, ideological lineups that we were used to seeing. You saw Chief Justice John Roberts Jr. and Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who a lot of their questions focused on the fact that this risk corridor program was actually meant to incentivize the insurers. And perhaps without it, they wouldn't have even participated in the marketplace in the first place. So they seem to be concerned with this issue of fairness. So, yeah, I mean, in the end, I would say um, the 
safe money is on the insurance companies winning this case, which is obviously going to open up a lot of money that's going to be owed by the government. But, uh, you know, as our colleague Jeff Overly reported, it's probably not going to be the end of the matter, as it rarely is. Um, Congress and the insurers are probably going to jockey over how this money will eventually be handed over. But until then, we'll be, you know, anxiously awaiting the, the court's opinion. And specifically, I'm curious to see what the ultimate uh, lineups here are from some of the justices that we don't hear from, like Clarence Thomas. You know, what's he going to say in this case? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up. Uh, thanks so much for breaking that down, Jimmy. Uh, that's about it, I think, for us this week, but not for 2019. Next week, even though the court won't be in session, we'll be back with a special episode looking ahead to 2020. Absolutely. There is a new Supreme Court with the replacement of Justice Anthony Kennedy, and we will be talking about how the court's new working conservative majority is going to handle you know, its precedents and what its priorities are going to be over the next few terms. And we'll have a special guest to talk about that. I'm looking forward to it. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Dylan Morosis, Bill Donahue, Jeff Montgomery, and Jeff Oberly. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. Download us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.